want to thank you for subscribing and listening in to our podcast today. Uh, please rate and review us. We would also love to connect with you. If you would like to, to speak to a pastor, you want more information about our church, text CONNECT to 903-586-6520 and we will follow up with you. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, you can text GIVE to 903-586-6520 and click on the link and you will have the option of giving one time or on a regular basis. We would greatly appreciate your support and thanks again for listening. Have a great week. Well, each spring, as Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday approaches, you normally see articles in, in secular magazines about Jesus. Every now and again, you'll see one of those. And, and uh, used to be specials on TV when people had watched TV stations, right? And, uh, um, of course, you'll, you'll probably see them on your streaming devices as well. But uh, with, with many of these shows and in many of these articles, you will hear from so-called scholars about who Jesus was historically and the events surrounding his death and what, what led to his death and, and what his followers believed about his resurrection. Several years ago, I decided to watch one of these shows and on this particular show, there was uh, Dr. Stephen Patterson, who is a professor at Willamette University, and he was sharing his thoughts and opinions on Jesus. He is uh, a professor of religion and the history of religion, and also a member of the well-known liberal group, the Jesus Seminar. And when he was asked about Jesus and about his death, he basically said this. He said that while Jesus was this towering historical figure, no question about that, while he was, was a remarkably skillful, extremely moral teacher, while he, he was a solid religious leader who had great intentions, while he, he stood for and set his mind to accomplish great things, his life ended in a tragic way. He was killed tragically for his cause. According to Dr. Patterson, that was not Jesus' intent. His intent was, was not to die in this terrible way, but is what happened as a result of his ministry. And this view is nothing new. Many believe and teach that Jesus was this great revolutionary leader who opposed the established and cold, heartless, unloving, bigoted system of the day. And as a result of his beliefs and his teachings and his cause, he was put to death. They argue that, that while his impact has been undeniable because of what he stood for and who he stood against, he was tragically killed. They argue that his death was not in his plans, though he knew it could be a possibility for what he was teaching and who he was standing against. For that reason, Dr. Patterson and others like him argue that Jesus' death should not be where our focus is. 
It should be on his life only. Simply the moral teachings that he taught, that should be our focus. These people also deny the physical and bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, but they argue that it's, it's Christ's moral teachings and his example that should live on in us and through us. Let's see if they're right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 23. This morning we're going to be studying verses 44 through 49. We are three hours in to Jesus' crucifixion. We're at the sixth hour. There is a lot that has already happened that we've talked about. There is a lot happening at this point and moving forward. There are several miracles that occur around the cross, and God has something to say in those miracles. He's telling us, focus on this. Look at this. Something is happening here. I am doing something here on your behalf. There are things that Jesus says. Things said about Jesus that we should focus on. I have heard some scholars explain that the events surrounding the cross serve as God's commentary on the work that Jesus is accomplishing at Calvary. God is showing us things in these things that are happening. They're significant. So this morning we're going to turn our focus toward this passage and toward these events. And as we do that, there are four things I want you to see as we study this passage and what happened to Christ on the cross and the events surrounding the crucifixion. I want you to see four things. I want you to see the darkness at the cross, the joy from the cross, the plan of the cross, and the response to the cross. Okay? I'll go through those one by one. The darkness at the cross, the joy from the cross, the plan of the cross, and the response to the cross. First, I want you to see the darkness at the cross. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So let's stop there for a minute. While we often sing, and we should sing, and we have been singing this morning, songs of praise about what took place at Calvary, while we sometimes wear crosses around our necks and decorate our homes and our, our churches with this instrument of death, while this event is a truly glorious and wonderful event in history, it was also an extremely dark and sad event as well. It should bring tears to our eyes, like it did with Clay reading Isaiah 53 this morning. We know this is a dark event from the details of the story. Luke tells us here, three hours into the crucifixion, at the sixth hour there was darkness over the land for three hours until the ninth hour. Now the reason we know that this took place three hours in is because in Mark's gospel, Mark tells us in Mark 15, 25, that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. That is 9 a.m. for you Western-minded folks, right? 
9 a.m. 9 a.m. is when he was crucified. So the events taking place here that we're looking at today took place three hours later at noon. Okay? This is the time when the sun would be at its peak. At that time, when the sun should be shining its brightest, we're told there was darkness over the whole land. And this continued for three hours. Now, it is debated whether or not this is a localized darkness or a darkness over all the lit part of the world at this time. There is some extra-biblical historical sources that seem to indicate that this was darkness over all the lit world. Origen, from church history, made mention of a statement by a certain Roman historian who mentioned an unusual darkness at this time. There is another extra-biblical historical source that reports that Pilate is speaking to Tiberius and in the writing he is referring to this darkness. It is assumed that the emperor is well aware that in all the, the world at this time where the sun is to be shining the brightest, it's dark. So we have extra-biblical historical sources to support this. I believe the whole lit part of the world from noon to three was covered in darkness while Christ is being crucified. God supernaturally turned out the sun. Why did he do this? What is the meaning behind the darkness? Well, we're not told here. No Bible writer in the gospel accounts in the New Testament comment on this darkness, but I don't believe they need to. I believe it's obvious. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever there is darkness, it is a symbol of divine judgment. Remember the Jews before they're delivered out of Egyptian bondage? You remember one of the last plagues before the death of the firstborn? What was it? Darkness. Judgment against Egypt. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 5, when he's telling of God's coming judgment on Israel, he describes it as darkness and sorrow, and there are many more. It's not by accident that God announces the coming of Christ by lighting up the darkness, and that Christ is often referred to as the light of the world. The salvation that God provides through Christ is seen as light. His judgment is darkness. So that darkness that takes place on noon on that day is associated with divine judgment. And notice where that darkness is set. It's set on the head of God's own Son. He's the one that is experiencing this judgment. He is the one being punished. He is the object of God's wrath. We, we're, we are told that he, he bore our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. What takes place at Calvary, get this, is not the death of a loving martyr. It's more than the crucifixion of a good man, the martyr of an innocent man. It is the substitutionary death of a sin-bearing Savior. We don't just learn that here, it's all over. The Bible. Isaiah 53. We're told that, that Christ will be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. We're told that the Lord will lay on Him the iniquities of us all. 
He became sin who knew no sin for us. In Romans 4.25, we're told that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says Christ died for our sins. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did He do that? By becoming a curse for us. And we're told in Scripture that cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Now it's important to realize here, got to do a little theological work. We can oftentimes make assumptions where we shouldn't and, and end up in a ditch in heresy. But it's important to remember that while Christ bore sin, He took the weight of sin, past, present, and future upon Himself. He Himself never became a sinner. Okay, Though he was engulfed in sin, became sin, he remained sinless. Notice, he has no desire for that sin, does he? We see in the statement he makes in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, he says, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he is bearing our sin, he is forsaken by the Father. He cries out to God. He has no longing for that sin at Calvary. He has a longing for God himself. John MacArthur says this, What does Christ long for at Calvary? He longed for God. And therein lies the evidence of the purity of His Spirit. So while Christ bore sin, He was made sin, He was without sin. He had no desire for sin. So we see at the cross, the cross is a dark and gloomy event because at the cross, God the Son was made to be sin by God for us. God the Father, God's judgment was poured out on Him. Christ was crushed at Calvary. It's a dark and sad event, yet it's also a joyous event. How can this event be so dark and yet be so joyous? The answer is simple, because of what it accomplished. Let's look at it now. Let's look at the joy from the cross. The joy from the cross, point number two. Look at verse 45. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Stop there. I love this verse. In this verse, we have the glorious contrast of the gospel. In this verse, we have light in the darkness. We have joy in the midst of sadness. We have salvation through judgment. Here we have another miracle that occurs. This miracle takes place in the temple, and not just anywhere in the temple, but in the inward most sacred part of the temple. It takes place right outside the most holy place in the Holy of Holies, right? Any student of Scripture knows that in the, in the midst of the temple... God had instructed that there be this inner sanctuary and it was a place where He would, would dwell in a very unique, special, powerful way. And there was a great curtain, signaling a great divide, right? Between God and, and man. No one was allowed in. Because of their sin, they could not enter in. I've got one of our girls' books in mind that says that. It's helpful to think about it in that way. Only the high priest, and he wasn't without sin, 
But he could enter in once a year and he would have to offer blood sacrifice on the altar for his sins and the sins of his people that he represented. So, so this place is where God's presence resided in a special way. And the curtain covered this place, reminding everyone that there was this great separation between God and man. And even when the high priest could enter in once a year, he couldn't bring anyone in with him. It was a reminder that they were still in need of salvation. Every time they passed that bloody scene in the tabernacle and later at the temple, it was a reminder to them of the fact that they were sinners set against God and in need. But when Christ died, all of that changed. Amen? Amen. That curtain was ripped. How was it ripped? Matthew tells us from top to bottom. That's important. Matthew 27, 51 And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is significant, is it not? It was not ripped from bottom to top because the way back into a right relationship with God was not made available by man, but by the God-man who came from heaven to earth to become one of us. And it was ripped by God who sent His Son, signifying that He has done this work. He alone has made a way for us to enter back in to a right relationship with Him. He wanted to show us that, which is why He took His finger and ripped it all the way down. God is showing us through Christ's death, through the tearing of the temple curtain, that through Christ's accomplished work on the cross, the way into His presence has been made available once again like it was in the very good beginning. According to Robert Stein, he says this, the tearing of the curtain is to be interpreted as the opening of salvation to all through the death of God's Son, the ending of the ceremonial and ritual laws of the covenant and the replacement of the temple. By the body of Christ. Very good. While there is gloom at the cross, there's the darkness of the cross, there is also joy from the cross. And it is important to note, none of these events took the Lord Jesus by surprise. All of these were planned into the plan of salvation from the very beginning. Jesus came for this reason. He's been talking about this all along, right? So I want you to see point number three, the plan of the cross. We have the darkness at the cross, the joy from the cross. I want you to see the plan of the cross. Look at verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus is in complete control. Throughout His earthly ministry, He is on this divine schedule and He is always right on time. He is in perfect sync with the Father in accomplishing the work He sent Him to accomplish, which should make sense to us because He and the Father are one. Jesus is God the Son, and a divine characteristic of God the Son is that He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Christ knew what needed to be fulfilled. He knew what scripture he needed to fulfill and when, and he did not give his life up. Notice I said give his life up 
He laid his life down. But he didn't do that until all was completed. In John's Gospel, we're told in John 19.30 that when all had been fulfilled, Jesus says, it is finished. To tell us die, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, folks, when he says it is finished, that is not a cry of defeat, right? I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You know that, right? It's not a cry of defeat. He's not saying, I'm finished, I'm done for. He's saying, it's finished, it's completed. The work that God sent me to accomplish, it's done, it's finished. And then notice what he does next. This is so good. John says, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He didn't jerk and suddenly slump and kill over, right? John says he bowed his head. The Greek word used there means to lay or gently pillow your head. Luke says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. When Jesus accomplished the work the Father sent him to accomplish, he gently pillowed his head, breathed his last, and gave up his life. In John 10, Jesus made it clear, no one, no one, and and in the Greek it means no one, takes my life from me. I lay it down. He laid it down for us. No one took Christ's life from him. He laid it down. He offered it up like a, like a, for, as our good and perfect high priest, right? He offered his life up. Also as our, our substitute and perfect sacrifice on his own terms, by his own power, in accordance with the will of his heavenly Father. And he did not lay it down. He did not give it up until all things were finished, until salvation was complete. That's the plan. And he kept to it. Now let's look at the response. The response to the cross. Look at verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. In Matthew 27, 54, we're told, When the centurion and those who were with them, so there's more than just him, Keeping watch over Jesus saw what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Here we have another account of a transformed centurion. A transformed Roman leader. We learn of one centurion, the great faith of one centurion, during Jesus' earthly ministry in Luke chapter 7. We learn of Cornelius, another transformed centurion in Acts chapter 10. He goes from being a God-fearer to a Christ follower after he has an encounter with Peter. And through him, the gospel goes out through his household to the Gentile people. So we have these stories throughout the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts of these great confessions and these transformations of these Roman leaders, these Gentiles, right? Roman rulers, and here we have another one. Remember, a centurion was a Roman soldier, is a Roman leader of Roman soldiers, a leader of a hundred Roman soldiers. 
and we have this centurion here with Jesus, keeping watch over him. There are other soldiers with him, we learn in Matthew's account. And he saw all the events of what was taking place. He saw the darkness over the land. He felt the earthquake. He, he saw what was being shouted at Jesus. He saw the way Jesus responded. He was, he was witnessing the, the transformation of the thief on the cross who professes faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, at, at the end of his life, he, he sees, he's convinced, right? God has done a work in his heart and life. He believes Jesus was who he claimed to be. Not only did he believe him to be innocent, we're told by Luke, he worshiped God. In Matthew's account, we're told that he and the soldiers with him, he's influencing right there, isn't he? He's being an evangelist right at the jump with the other Roman soldiers under his care. And they all believed Christ to be the Son of God. Folks, that right there is a miracle. I wish you could see the way the Roman soldiers were and you would see the miraculous work of God in that encounter. It's amazing. And he's still doing that today. This room is filled with those stories. Look at verse 48. More response to Jesus. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, they were gathered to see and witness this, and when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. It seems as if they had, they had gathered at first to, to, to witness this. You know, it, it, it was it's tough for us to understand, but thrilling for people, certain people in this day and their depravity to go and watch someone be put to death in this way. And after they had witnessed probably what they believed to be is an innocent man being put to death. They, they went away sorrowful, but I believe these people returned home unchanged. They sort of had the perspective of Judas. Remember, Judas didn't believe Jesus to be the Christ, but he knew he was innocent. And he felt bad because an innocent man was killed because of him. And these people, they returned home. They were unchanged, but they were, they were sorrowful that they had witnessed a innocent man put to death. That was the attitude of many leaving that place. Verse 49, more responses to Jesus. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The women at the cross are often overlooked, but should not be. They are the central focus of every gospel writer who's recording these events here. They had been following Jesus from Galilee. They followed Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they, unlike the disciples who, who drifted away from Christ while He's at Calvary, they moved closer and closer to Christ. There's only John there that we know of that's there with them. So they're drawing close to the Lord Jesus during his time of being crucified. They don't leave him. They're there at his burial. We'll talk about that next week. And they're going to be, we're going to learn in, in a few weeks, they're the first witnesses to his resurrection. They were devoted followers of Jesus. So notice the response to Christ here on the cross. You have Gentiles a centurion, 
and other Roman soldiers who respond in faith, who praise God. They profess faith in Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God. You have faithful women at Calvary who do not pull away from Christ like many of His disciples, but draw near to Him. And you have many others who, while they return home grieving Jesus' death, they remain unchanged by it. Many like them today, the last group, They have an encounter with Christ. Maybe they leave with positive thoughts about Him, but unchanged. He is not Lord of all. He is not Lord of their life. Lord over them all. They they have not surrendered to Him as Lord. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you have positive thoughts about Jesus, good moral teacher, Worth my time this morning, but that's it. Jesus did not leave that option for us to just feel good about Him, to have positive thoughts about Him. He came to reign supreme, and He does reign supreme. And the question for you is whether or not He reigns supreme in your heart and life. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Jesus says, you're either with me, I am either Lord over all your life, or you are my enemy. Only two options that he leaves us. That's it. What is your response going to be to Jesus today? I urge you, I plead with you, respond like the women at Calvary. Respond like the thief on the cross who places his faith and trust in Jesus, the centurion and his soldiers, turn from your sin. Give your life up and over to Jesus today. Place your faith and trust in him alone for salvation and be saved. Let's pray together.